Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 304th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Chad Chubb. Chad is the founder of WealthKeel, an independent virtual RIA based in Tampa, Florida, that advises on over $100 million in assets for 110 client households. What's unique about Chad, though, is how he's not only implemented a surge meeting approach to meet with each of his clients ongoing during a two-month period just twice a year, but has gone further to implement a surge onboarding approach where he only takes on new clients in two-month intervals twice a year as well, all of which has allowed him to implement a highly systematized and efficient process so that he has more time and capacity throughout the rest of the year to focus on firm strategy, the client experience, and populating his wait list of new clients for the next surge onboarding cycle. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, as Chad focused increasingly on serving a specialization of Gen X and Gen Y physicians, he noticed an increasingly large overlap in the types of planning issues he was solving for client after client that led him to a systematized surge approach to his client review meetings. How, after almost reaching a burnout point while onboarding 40 to 60 new clients per year in 2020 and 2021, Chad realized that he had to implement a surge onboarding approach and a wait list to more easily scale and control the growth of his practice. And how Chad leverages the combination of writing for a finance-focused blog for physicians, as well as his own website, and concentrating on SEO tactics while speaking in person at hospitals to find his ideal prospects where they are and rapidly grow his firm. We also talk about how Chad has evolved the pricing of his firm to use a retainer model that still approximates the revenue opportunities of his assets under advisement approach, which has given him a path to increase fees over time to scale the firm. Why Chad's next steps are to focus on developing and expanding the team further so that he can move more into a CEO role where he's less client-facing and more focused on the operations of the firm to keep it growing and scaling. And how Chad has gotten comfortable with referring out clients who don't want to wait for the next surge period and has even been right-sizing his client base by sending no longer good fit clients out to other advisors who may now be a better fit. And be certain to listen to the end, where Chad shares how despite the fast growth success that he's had, he's still dealing with the ever-present feelings of imposter syndrome and what he calls the entrepreneur dilemma, where as when you hit a goal, the only remaining focus is to hit the next goal and Sometimes it leaves a little room to celebrate the smaller wins that comprise building a successful business. Why Chad wishes he discovered the power of an SEO strategy coupled with a clear niche specialization earlier on in his career after grinding initially with a Project 100 approach of just calling on friends and family. And why Chad believes that creating systematized processes and a structured client communication meeting cadence, like surge meetings, isn't just about the operational efficiency to scale, but is also the key to helping him discover and develop a better balance between his professional and personal life. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Chad Chubb. Welcome, Chad Chubb, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It is an honor. It's going to be really weird to hear my voice after listening to about 300 of these before me, but I'm excited to have the opportunity, my friend. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I'm I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and the really cool way that you have built your firm and, and a particular focus and a business model really tied into them. 
But the thing actually that that fascinates me the most about how, how you built the firm is just the 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 way that you're servicing clients and and bringing them on. And I know you're one of those firms that was earlier down the road to doing what's now kind of known as surge meetings, like clustering meetings in various seasons of the year and like you know, doing a big blitz of meetings, and then you get a lighter flow for a while. But you to me have kind of taken this to an interesting logical extreme that you you do not only surges for client meetings, but you actually do surges for prospect meetings, which means there are folks that may want to work with you and get told like, oh yeah, I'd be happy to work with you starting in a couple of months because we onboard a whole lot of clients all together. And just like the first time I had heard that you were doing that, I was like, huh, I don't hear that very often because for most of us, I feel like the moment we get a prospect that wants to do business with us, it's like, awesome. Did you want to do on Friday or next Monday? Like, how soon can we get going? And you break this up into surges. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to just talk about surges and surge meetings and surge onboarding and and how you do this. But I think to get started, just share with us a little bit the overall framework and concept of doing surge meetings. I know for some people who are listening, this is still a new concept that they haven't necessarily heard before. Yeah. So, you know, surge meetings, which, you know, shout out to to the podcast. I mean, I probably never even knew about surge meetings until I just heard other great advisors that were doing these. And, you know, it's one of those things where it just kind of turned on a light. Uh, hopefully, you know, this will do this for a few other advisors as well today. And it seemed interesting. It, it made a lot of sense. It also made sense because of um, how hard that we really niche at a high level. A surge review meeting season for us is pretty much two months early in the year, two months later in the year. So we, we do two reviews per year with all of our clients. We're hosting review meetings for all of our households, which again, we'll hit these details, but just call it around 110 households. So I'll run 110 review meetings in March and April, and I'll do it all over again in September, October. So that's how we run our surge review meetings. And it's just a very efficient process for our team. It leads to a better process for uh, our better experience for our clients as well. And then we really just took that to the next level um, relatively recently too, where we now do a very similar process for client onboarding as well. So uh, at a high level, surge is, is mayhem usually for a few months or a few weeks, depending on how you set it up. But then it allows you to really focus on, on other areas of your business, whether that's you know social media, whether that's content, whether that's prospecting, whatever the case may be. So that's why we really like the, the surge outlines. All right. So how play this out for me? Because I just like, I'm just doing some rough math in my head. Surges run in two months of the year, I guess two, two twos. So March, April in the spring, September, October in the fall. So that's call it roughly eight or nine weeks, 110-ish review meetings. So if I'm if I'm doing math right, like we're talking about 12 to 13 meetings a week, every week for two months. Michael, you are very good at math, my friend. You nailed it. So okay. I, I do. I go really heavy on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and I'm usually hosting about five reviews each one of those days. I'll block off some Thursday afternoons, and every now and then, if we have a client that just has kind of a weird schedule, we'll also adapt to that. Now, that in in full clarity, that number I think would be unattainable for me to keep doing at that pace. So there's a deeper growth story in here. There's a, there's a deeper hiring story in here. But if I keep at that pace, Michael, I, I would hit my burnout and I'd probably sell the business and, and become a beet farmer with Dwight Schrute. Um, I just I wouldn't be able to contain it uh, at that pace. Even even in quote unquote, just two month cycles, that's still, that's getting heavy for you. 
Yeah. And it, and when I'm done with the surge, I kid you not, I'm usually taking about a one-week family vacation at some point just to kind of decompress from everything. So I don't want to sugarcoat it and say like, hey, yeah, this is easy. Anyone can do it. It, it definitely takes a toll. Um, I feel good with five or six meetings. I, I know I have some, some, some friends, uh, some other advisors that might do a lower amount, but they'll spread it out a little bit more. I feel comfortable at that pace. Um, I feel like I still get into the weeds, but you can also, you know, spread that out. I mean, heck, I don't know. Maybe there's some that could even do more than that. But for me, that's that's been my sweet spot the past few years. So drill down to this a little bit more. Just what it like when you're in these surge environments. What does this look like? Like, I just how long is a review meeting? How tightly do you stack them? Like, what what is a typical day, or I guess what does a typical week look like for you when you're in in the surge environment? Yeah. So the other thing to add here is our our um, our niche is Gen X Gen Y physicians, um, and I add that in there only because the traditional nine to five schedule doesn't work for everybody. So we usually on those Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I'm usually running meetings till about seven o'clock every night. And it's funny because uh, we when we when we tell our clients to schedule, we use we'll essentially send them a link and they they know what to do from there. The five and the six o'clock meeting slots fill up. It's almost like the new iPhone came out. Like It just fills up immediately. It's, it's actually really neat to watch. So on those on those days there, Tuesdays and Wednesdays are very heavy. Like I said, Thursdays will add in some, it, depending on how we're looking. But usually meetings are about an hour long. We use Acuity for our, um, our scheduling and you can put buffers in there. So I always put in at least 30 minutes. And then I always say, there's another 15 block, 15 minute block above it. So most of the time I'm getting at least a 30 minute break in there, which again is, is good for me. Some meetings might go a little bit longer. Some meetings might go a little bit shorter. So it's, it's, for all intents and purposes, it's pretty much back to back. I'll usually add a little calendar block in there to make sure that I can eat food at some point during the day, but it's, it's, it's heavy there. It's, it's heavy on that Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah. I mean, I'm just envisioning like if you, you know, if you get into five reviews with essentially call it hour and a half cycles, like hour on 30 break, hour on 30 break, quote unquote, back to back, like you're at seven and a half hours for the day, put a lunch break in there as well. And yeah, I get it. Like you get going first thing in the morning and you're pretty much going until six or seven at night. Yep, exactly. And so five meetings on Tuesday and Wednesday, a few more on Thursday. Now we're essentially at our 12, 13, 14 meetings a week so that we can stay on track all the way through the, the season here. So, so what happens on Mondays and Fridays? Yeah, it's meeting prep day and then meeting follow-up day. So Mondays are where I'm jumping in and finally going through the meetings for the week. Our process, we actually have a pretty well organized process where my team has already started the review meeting process almost about a full month in advance. So about four weeks out, we'll send an email to our clients saying, hey, we need to get this updated. We need to get this updated. We'll get what, those what are, they, what are they updating? Yeah. So we'll um, each each surge kind of has its own focus points on what we're looking for. Where you know early in the year we're going to be a lot more heavy on tax planning and, and is everything done? Is everything ready to go? Is there anything we missed? Is there anything we can sneak in? Did you get your backdoor Roth IRA done? So that's usually very heavy early in the year. So uh, we get pay stubs at every meeting. We get uh, tax returns every year. If there's any accounts that we don't manage directly, you know, we want statements for those. If there's insurance policies, we want new statements for those. If anything's changed in there, 
Later in the year, that usually pivots to, hey, it's open enrollment season. Let's go. Let send us your packet, even if nothing's changed. Send us your open enrollment packet. Let's make sure. Let's let's make sure we didn't miss anything, right? Maybe maybe uh, we missed the FSA. And now you can take advantage of that, right? We we want to make sure we're kind of going through things of that nature. And then being later in the year, this is also where we're saying, you know, is there any twelve thirty one deadlines? Have we gotten everything done for for what we can for this year? We with our clients being physicians and, and higher income households, we we spend a lot of time on tax planning and, and where can we do our best for them in, in that ballpark. So we, we do spend a lot of a time on that. So we'll, we'll have agendas for each one. Our team knows what to ask for. We'll get that. We'll dissect it. Maybe we'll ask another follow-up information. So we start that, like I said, about right around a, a month in advance, usually about three weeks is when we're starting to really get in there. And then I won't jump in though for my review uh, until that Monday. And then that's where I get in to start to review. This was updated. This was updated and really start my prep on Monday. So really during surge, that's all I do on Monday. That's, you know, maybe I'll make sure there was no fires over the weekend and emails really early in the day. Uh, but for the most part, Monday's that meeting prep day. So walk me through even just a little bit more for that Monday. I mean, I'm just trying to visualize like it's Monday morning. I have 13 meetings on the calendar. Like if I'm just going to spend 20 or 30 minutes glancing at each client file and thinking about what I'm doing, I've I've obliterated the entire day just 30 minutes per client mentally gearing up for the meeting plus taking lunch at some point. Yeah. And and this is where having a really good team is vital. So I have a pair planner on my team. Uh, his name is Zach. Um, he'll actually, he's passed the CFP. He hasn't hit his three-year mark yet, but he will this November. So very close to a CFP, but he is a, a rock star to say the least. So he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting earlier. So if there are any like, oh man, Chad, like this is a huge change. If there's anything vital or, or hey, did you know about this or this switch or that switch? I get noticed well before that Monday. Monday's more or less my time to come in, make sure, okay, we're organized here. We got this, we got this, kind of go through my usual clicks for the plan presentation. You know, we, we utilize e-money for our planning software, kind of looking at the long term and also looking at my agenda, you know, what we have for that. We actually use Notion. So I know Notion's probably not super popular in the financial planning world, but we actually use Notion for our note system. And I I keep very good ongoing notes, and, and so does our entire team in Notion where we almost are building the agenda throughout the year or between the meetings. So if clients kind of send us something, we're always tracking it. So I'll usually go through those notes or if I had something in there that we set a follow-up on, but maybe they didn't get it done after the last review. So really when I get in there on Monday, it's it's the small things, me being prepared to just have a more personal conversation, not me getting in there and updating all their data. My team already took care of that for me. Kind of like... Okay. Sounds weird when you work with doctors to say a doctor analogy, but kind of like the doctor analogy, right? You kind of get in there, you see the chart, you look through it a little bit. We're looking through it a little bit longer than what your uh, your primary care physician probably does, but that's really what I'm doing there, just preparing for any changes or anything that I want to walk through for for that meeting. But it's not the deep planning part of it. My, my team's already walked through that. So, so help me understand a little bit further on Notion. So I'm, I'm sort of generally familiar, like note taking app. But sort of note taking app on steroids. I feel like they were they were trying to replace Evernote and go a little further. So like note taking and to dos and sort of like lightweight database structures you can link together. But I guess I just help me understand why Notion and not like good old fashioned CRM system for advisors to take notes. Yeah, and we do use we do use Redtail. So I actually do a lot through Redtail too. 
I even do, you know, all my note taking after meetings through mobile assistant. And then we throw that into Redtail and we save files. So I still do the more traditional like compliance rule based side of, of note taking per se. But for, for Notion, you know, shout out to the, uh, the AJC with Justin and Taylor. I, I would have never known about Notion if it wasn't for they, they hosted uh, KHE once before for uh, um, just a presentation like inside of our group. And I was like, wow, this is like really cool. And we used to track similar things in a Word document, but it just it was always so many clicks, Michael. It's like I always felt like I was updated in one spot, then updated in somewhere else. So we really just use Notion now to be our upfront notes, like the things that we always want to know that are always right there in front of us. And, and sometimes it's just, you know, having the kids' names, the hobbies. I do a lot of my business tracking in there where I can literally track, you know, I've tracked every prospect call I've had over the past two years since I started using Notion. It's, it's a really, it's almost like if Word and Excel had a baby and the baby came out and was just really cool, like this was a cool baby. That, that's how I would describe Notion. If anyone that was good at Notion looked at my stuff, they'd probably be like, oh my gosh, this guy's a rookie. But for me, it, it just it, it does a lot of neat things. It's easy to reference things. It's easy to link things. So Notion was one of our newer additions here probably about two, two years ago or so, but we have been very happy with it. Does it, like, does it link to Redtail as well? I mean, I'm just envisioning this like, oh, I need some information about the client. Like, was this a Notion note or a Redtail note? And I, I got to figure out which place to go or am I overthinking this? Yeah, so... For review meeting notes, like the actual follow-up, this is what we discussed, here's what we went through, that's always going to be in Redtail. And, and not only that, we'll have a Word document in their file from, from Mobile Assistant. But for me, putting like the quick bullet points on, did they complete their backdoor Roth IRA? Did they update their life insurance like we asked? That's what I'm tracking in Notion. So it's an easier, quick snapshot for me and my team and an easier way to just keep little updates. I feel like we had a baby boom this week. I think four or five of our clients had babies. And just like having notes readily available, you know, baby boy, uh, you know, Oliver, baby girl, you know, whatever the, the, the case would be, it just, it's a much easier reference for me. It's just not as clunky. It's just, it's, it's a very smooth flowing system. And then you mentioned mobile assistant as well, just for folks who aren't familiar, what, what is that and where is that fitting into the picture here? Yeah, I mean, mobile assistant has been a huge value add for us because I it would be very difficult to do surges I think without some type of dictation service. So, um at its core, you know, mobile assistant for us it's a dictation service. So, after my reviews, I can get in there, usually record, you know, 2 to 5 minute note saying, "Hey, here's what we walk through." You can even build little templates in there so I know like the questions I always want to hit just to make sure compliance is always happy uh, having notes in there. And then once you're done, they usually will translate it in pretty quickly. Usually I say I get it back within a day or so. They'll send me an email. We get the email. Actually, they send it to Zach now. Zach gets it. He throws it in the client folder. And then they also send that same note over to Redtail. And then they'll they'll tag it to the client. And it just, it's very organized. Again, keeps your compliance team very happy, but also just from our side of it, very easy to use. So I'm still trying to visualize just Mondays and the Monday flow a little more. I guess just what you're going into the client meeting with. I mean, are you doing financial plan software updates? Or I guess is Zach doing financial plan software updates? Like are you you updating an e-money projection every time there's a planning meeting? Yeah, so we we keep a lot of that 
updated throughout the year. So whenever clients are sending us updates, we'll update their plan right away. You know, if they had a pay increase or they added a new mortgage, whatever the case may be, we always try to be in real time. We do see a lot of our clients literally log into eMoney on a daily basis. I think that's part of the generation that we work with. So they are very active in eMoney. They, they do like to get on there. They like to see their, their snapshots. So we update it either with the review or during the year. So we're always really tracking those times to make sure that the plan is up to date. So when we go through the review, it just, most of the time I save the full plan update for our second review, which we call Surge 2. That's our our later uh, in the year review. And that's where we'll really click through, hey, here's your base plan with all the updates since last year at this time. Here's the new what if scenarios you wanted to see. Hey, you wanted to look about cutting back from, you know, to 0.8 FTE and, and lower your time and do that. Or what if we do this? So we're walking through those different scenarios, usually only once per year, assuming the client didn't have questions in the middle of the year. And it, it's not uncommon for them to send us something crazy in the middle of the year. We have you know, clients right now looking to buy uh, their first home and, and they're, they're contacting us quite, as, quite a bit. So in that example where we're not hosting a meeting, we'll actually just record a Loom video. Um, we'll get in there, we'll update their financial plan live for them. We'll send them the video so that they can both watch it on their own time because they're two busy young professionals with a young family. And then they send us questions as they need them or they'll even send us a Loom video back. So just kind of always adapting to our our clientele, our niche as well. We're always trying to be very proactive in their, their plan build and their plan updates. So what do you walk into a client meeting with when you're doing these surges? Yeah. And, and so we're about 99% virtual. So I walk right into my Zoom and I literally, uh, I'll have Notion open. I have Notion to the right of me. If the client has active investments with us, we'll have their their most recent investment statement. We, we usually only try to focus on investments one meeting per year. But I think it's just the nature of the beast. Usually a question will come up here or there, especially you know in times like now where there's more volatility. So we'll always have a statement ready. Uh, but for the most part, it's my Notion notes. It's my e-money page. And then whatever reports we created for that meeting, like I said, you know, we might have, we use Black Diamond for performance reporting, uh, or if it's our tax meeting, we could have stuff ready to roll through like Holista Plan. So that's another software that we really love. So we're always trying to have whatever deliverables we have ready to go. But for the most part, Notion is going to guide my conversation on where we're going to go. And what gets shown to the client in this? I mean, like, does, does the client see and have access to Notion? What, where does it show up for them? Yeah, no, they don't. They don't have access to Notion. Every now and then, if we have something neat on there, like I'll, I'll pull Notion over uh, and show them like a note or something. But for the most part, most of the time, they they would never see Notion. It's just it's more or less an internal communication system for us uh, to track you know different things. I even track a lot of business things in there as well, and and personal things as well because you can create different notebooks and things like that. And I think you said you're you're building agendas as well. Or I guess you you said you were building agendas throughout the year in Notion. What do you do with agendas or how do you serve up agendas to clients? Yeah. So with our agendas, we have a blueprint. It's more of an internal agenda than it is an agenda for for them. So we don't send them a formal document that says, hey, we're going to cover this, this, and that. Now we do have pre-meeting prep questions. So we'll send them over uh, questions ahead of time, literally when they schedule through Acuity. So when we schedule through Acuity, they have to answer pre-meeting questions prep questions right away. And we'll literally say, do you, what's, what's top of mind? Because if you have a million things at the top of your mind, the last thing you probably want to hear me walk through is your performance report, right? Let's uh-huh. talk through what's important to you. Heck, if we run out of time, I'll send you a Loom video and I'll walk through your whole performance report for another 30 minutes. Like 
let's talk about what's top of mind for you. So we try to always lead with that. Um, we, we really push that, usually even start most meetings like, hey, I know you didn't list anything there, but you know anything top of mind or just you know student loans and things of that nature, we'll have even our top priority of student loans, major changes. So once they're done, we're going to go there next, and then we'll get to the traditional agenda per se, uh, or tax updates or whatever the case would be. So we, it's more or less an internal agenda than an agenda that we're presenting to them because we want to keep it, we want to keep it agile. And, and what, what else is in the pre-meeting questions that they get when they schedule with you? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's usually just the, Hey, has anything changed? Uh, is there anything that we should know about? Do we need to, just simple questions like, Hey, is, would anything change in your beneficiaries? Just one of those simple questions that, you know, could save a lot of nightmares in the long run. Yeah. And then we'll run through, hey, has there been any major updates? You know, yes or no. Is there any new scenarios you want to run? And then just kind of an open form at the bottom of it. What are we missing? You know, is there anything else you want to tell us headed into this meeting? We have a very, a very organized process. So we want our clients to always know, here's the experience you're going to get. We know what we're going to provide to you. You get excited for these meetings. We don't want you to think that you're, you know, forced into these and we're just going to click through some Excel spreadsheets and then send you on your way. That's, that's not fun for anybody. All right. So, so Mondays... I mean, is it just literally like it's Monday morning, like you and Zach sit down with a list of 13 meetings this week and just spend 20 or 30 minutes per client doing the, I, I kind of liked how you frame like the doctor's equivalent of like, let's review the chart together so I can make sure we've got the right information and like we're showing the right thing. And if there's a planning item or deliverable, let's look at it really quickly and make sure it's giving the right answer and recommendation to the client and like just boom, 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 all the way down this list of clients for the better part of a full day? Yeah. So my on, on Mondays, I usually come in and like I said, make sure no fires from over the weekend. So I think I have maybe like 30 minutes or an hour blocked off just for, for like email maintenance. And then I literally hit team meetings. So I, I always have my first meeting with Liz and then I have my second meeting with, with Zach. Zach and I usually aren't walking through every meeting that week, just anything that needed more attention. And then Zach will walk through like, hey, you know, for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, don't forget this. Or hey, they had this big update, just wanted to bring it to your attention before you go through it. And then Zach and I usually meet for anywhere for 30 minutes to an hour. And then after that, that's when I just go disappear. So then I will literally sit there, walk through every client meeting for that week, get my notes organized. I use an iPad for all my notes. So I, I also have templated notes in there in... I think it's called Not- Notability, I think is what I use. But I have little templates in there just so that when I am going through the meeting, so I'll create a new file for every client um, or a new note page. So that way, by the time I hit Tuesday morning, I can click on any client's note and be ready to go. And that's just for my chicken scratch. So that's where I'm going to list anything down. And then I send those back into, uh, we do all of our files through Box. So neat thing through Notability is I can just upload it right to Box when I'm done. So just trying to always have a very efficient process. But I, I will literally do that for the rest of the day on Monday just going through and preparing for those meetings the rest of the week. And so I got to ask, like, why, why notability for these notes and not Notion for these notes? So I realized, uh, this is how I know I'm getting old, uh, when Zach finally told me that I wasn't tech savvy anymore, and he asked me why I use a pen and paper to take notes. So he told me to use an iPad. And I was like, I don't know, Zach, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a real pen. Like, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't real. Like, this is, this is, no, I don't like this. And I still have to adjust to it, but I do. So I'm taking actual hard notes. So I'm using the Apple Pen. I'm actually writing on my screen where I, I can't do that with Notion. Okay. And that was always my big thing. Like I didn't want to be typing during client meetings or anything like that. I just want to be able to jot down something as a little reminder. So that's why I, I use the iPad now. And that's that's a newer update for this year. That's 
That's the first time I've been called old in a while. So Zach, uh, Zach modernized me there. But we also have a very thorough follow-up process where you know we'll we'll check in and we're. We, we send a summary of our meeting, uh, but then we'll also request anything else that maybe came up in the meeting if we think we're missing. And that's where I'll also start to already make my agenda internally through Notion. I'll already start to make our agenda for the next surge meeting as well. So it's 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 an organized process. It, it's sometimes when I say it out loud, um, it sounds like we're crazy, but it is very organized. It sounds like there's a lot of moving parts, but when you get it all lined up nice nicely, it it, it works. It's efficient. And how are you finding the time to send summaries of the meeting for 13 meetings that you run straight in two and a half to three days? Yeah. So you asked about Mondays and Fridays. You, you've now uncovered my okay. Friday. So it depends. Not Some Thursdays, some Thursdays, I won't host any client meetings. So my Thursday will be my meeting follow-up day. So I'll literally walk through all my meetings. I'll dictate my notes. Now, if there are larger gaps in the day, like let's just say, you know, I had a meeting, but I had an hour between it and nothing else needed to really be, you know, I hadn't re- didn't have to worry about anything else. I might then dictate notes right away. Um, I might even start to work on some of my follow-up notes, but uh, usually all day Thursday or all day Friday is for me following up, getting my notes organized, dictating the notes, making sure that they get into Redtail, into their file. And then once again, jumping into Notion, and then I'll literally put some notes in there for the team. Hey, Zach, please reach out to get their their taxes because we didn't get their 2021 taxes. And I, I really want to review those before the end of the year. Liz, can you send them a note about this? Or can you send them over? Oh, we got to update their beneficiaries. They just they just had another child this week. Let's get their bennies updated. So let's you know send over the DocuSign and, and, and can we work on that? And I'll just go through that again, usually about 30 minutes for me to get my notes organized where I can say, Zach, you're on, charge in, on top of this. Liz, if you could do this. And then, like I said, if there's anything I'm already thinking about for the next meeting, I'll start to lay that in Notion as well for that next review. And so all these notes are getting dictated on Friday. I I guess just like, how how do you remember quite what was discussed in each 13 different meetings to capture the notes? Is your head just pretty well wired to be able to keep track of which things were discussed in which of 13 different meetings over the past three days? Yeah. And, and that's one, I, I, I feel good at that pace. So I, I don't feel like I, I'm missing anything in there. But this is also why taking notes for me is really important because that is a lot of meetings. Uh, there are little things that could slip through the cracks. So that's what I'm usually writing down on my iPad. Like big thing, big thing, star, highlight, big thing, big thing. And then that way, when I come back through, I feel pretty good about that. And by having that extra time in there, I, I usually will decompress for a few minutes after that meeting too. And that's why I don't like having them go back to back because it feels like my brain doesn't get a chance to actually digest what just happened in that meeting. So even those few minutes after, even if it's only five, 10 minutes, really helpful for me to write a few more notes down on my iPad or maybe even type something to Notion right away. Or if they're like, hey, you know, I, I want to get money into the market tomorrow. Can, can you send a note over to Fidelity? Like those are things that I don't really want them waiting to Friday. So we're going to do that right away for them. So there's there's enough time in between meetings that I can let everything sink in or get it down on paper somewhere to make sure that it is not being missed. So it feels like in practice, a lot of this is actually rather heavily dependent on Zach, like bringing all like exactly all the prep that you need. So that you can hit the ground running on Monday with 13 client files queued up and can spend the limited amount of time that you've got just to review each one. And you've already got, here's the analysis, here's the thing we're going to provide to the client, here's the tax analysis or whatever it is, because Zach's built and prepped all of that. 100%. You know, as I noted earlier, th- there's no way, there's no way that I can have 110 clients 
without my team. I, I, I would probably have maybe 50, uh, even just scheduling, even scheduling 110 meetings. Uh, and we use, we use a calendar link. And, and luckily, our clients are very comfortable with that. I, I wouldn't even know how to schedule 110 meetings if we had to call everybody. I mean, that would just be, that, that gives me anxiety just saying it out loud. Yeah. So I, I, I can't speak highly enough about my team. I, I, I really think to, to really do this efficiently um, with the amount of clients that we have, you, you just, you have to, you have to have rock stars. I mean, that, that's the only way that this really works and works in a way that everyone's happy. Your clients are happy. You know, I, I want my clients to be bragging more about my team than me. And they do that consistently, which is, you know, that, that's probably the biggest smile I can get on a, on a daily or weekly basis. So I, I guess I'm just wondering as I'm hearing this, like, do you worry about what happens if you lose a team member when like you're this dependent on someone in a position like Zach to like do the just the analysis work and the prep work that's necessary so that you can hit the ground running on surges when you're doing your surges? Yes. I, I would be lying to you if I said, you know, I sleep good at night knowing that if Zach one day was like, you know what, creating my own firm or leaving, I would be in a very difficult spot. I tell Zach that. I, I, I'm, I'm okay being upfront with my teammates. And, it, it, you know, we are going to grow again later this year. And, and we're probably now hitting the phase where I'll unfortunately have to stop being more client facing. And, and I, I say unfortunately uh, on purpose because, I, you know, that's, that's what draws you to this profession, right? And, and start to transition more into that, that CEO role. I, I, I I don't like that. I don't like titles in general, but into that role where it's more of, hey, I have very limited clients and I'm building a team now, which will probably allow me to sleep a little bit better if if Zach or or, or Liz were to ever leave in the middle of the night. But it's certainly a concern. I you know I, I think any business owner would be scared of that. Will help because as you do the transition, you're going to hire more team members, and when you have more team members, there's just like more people and redundancy, so you're you'll be less concerned about what happens if a team member leaves. Correct. And, and, and this is not to say that this is a fix, but I can tell you that almost all of our processes are documented in looms already. So if there is a fire that happens, we probably could get someone up and running pretty quickly. Now in the middle of the surge, that would be terrifying. I'd probably come out of that surge with a full head of gray hair, not just the, the stragglers I have on the side right now. You know, again, I, I'd be lying to you, Michael, if I said that that wouldn't be terrifying if any team member left. And I think that just you know speaks volume to how important they are for for us as a you know as a as a firm. So, what happens if they need help in the other roughly eight months of the year besides the 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 two two month cycles that four month stint where you're doing surges? I mean, is it we meet with our clients in spring and the fall during the surges and and that's the deal, or we'll still meet with you anytime you want, but we also surge? Like, just yeah, yeah how, the latter. How does this work? Yeah, so we we'll, we don't put any type of limitations on our clients. I always say that I make a joke with our when we're doing these prospect calls until someone abuses it. No one's abused it in ten years, but if someone was ever like, "Hey, man, I want to have a daily call with you," we'd probably have to rethink that. We've never had a client abuse that. So whenever they contact us, it's it's one of those ones where if we look at it and it's something we can send them a Loom video on, we'll send them a Loom video. Um, if it's something that it is. We got to get on a Zoom together. Here's the link for Zach's calendar. Here's a link for my calendar. Let's walk through this together. Like I said, right now, we're, we're, we do a lot of that right now. There's a lot of walk through my open enrollment with me because I'm at a new hospital. Hey, what about should I be doing here with this mortgage? Should I be doing you know this amount down, this amount down, physician mortgage, regular mortgage? So we're, we're, we do that quite a bit in the summer. And it's just, it's more or less what level do they need? We're very good at emails too. So if it's something we can easily answer an email, we'll be there for them. But we don't limit that for clients. So 
Um, I usually give them the line that some years they're going to overpay us, some years they're going to over or underpay us. We just need it to be a fair value in the long run. And that seems to, to hold up pretty well. And then just what happens if they're reaching out for something that's timely, like in in surge? You know, I'm uh, my surge meeting is in mid-April, but it's the second week of March and like something's going on. I reach out and like, Chad, I I know I'm supposed to meet with you in April, but like I want to talk to you now, except you're in the middle of surge. Yeah, n- no problem. And and that's one where we will make sure it's truly an emergency. Now, even if a client says it's an emergency and I'm sitting there like, well, Mr. And Mrs. Smith, this is not an emergency. I'm not going to be like, hey, it's not an emergency. We'll be there. So it's one of those ones where either I'm hosting a call, uh, maybe Zach's hosting a call, maybe it's us sending an email, maybe it's a loom again. They're, they're not going to be pushed to their review meeting to say, hey, just wait until then. We'll be there for them. So it's it's one that we take in stride. And it, it, it doesn't happen all that often. I, 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 you know, I know speaking to a lot of great advisors through this through this the, this medium here, sometimes they'll think it's a, an emergency, but it's not, and we just got to talk them back. Sometimes they just want to, you know, hear your voice for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So you just you, you take it in stride based on what the topic is, what their tone is, you know, what their emotions are, and then you know we're we're pretty smart creatures. We we know what to do there. So because I'm just trying to understand overall, like, so why do you do this to yourself? <laughs> I, I mean, I I like these are two really intense cycles. And then clients may still be calling and asking for meetings over the other eight months as well, even as you're putting yourself into these super intense two-month cycles with 13 meetings a week for, for eight weeks. So like, why why this structure? Why doing this to yourself? Yeah, you know, sometimes I ask myself that. Um, but it, 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 it leads to a more efficient process for, for our clients. Our, our clients are getting a, a better review meeting, uh, in, my, in my humble opinion. It's a better process for our team. And I, I know I said earlier, I will not sugarcoat it. Those two months take a toll on me. But I know then that I have a summer where I can focus on content. I can just literally take off two, three weeks and no one would even know it. And I can just take my kids to Disney every other day if I want to. Uh, and then same thing through the holiday season. And and when, we, when we're out of surge, sure, we will, we will get client communications. But when you get, you know, out of 110 households, if you get two or three client correspondences in a week between Zach and I, you know, you can get through that relatively quickly. It's not, it's not throwing you off. So, so it's, it's that low when you're, when you're out of surge, like just, you, you may go from 13 meetings a week to just like two to three and anything's just even client emails about whatever it is. Like it's, it's that light when you get out of surge. Yeah, like just thinking like towards you know this week uh, where we we're on Friday, so we went we went through a whole week. We had a, a mortgage conversation, we had a, a student loan conversation based on how the the NIH loans could affect the PSLF. We had like one communication on PSLF on how it would affect them with with the new rules that went out this week. So this week was we had about four, and that's a, a pretty common week outside of surge. Sometimes it'll pick up. Sometimes we won't have any. You know, Zach always laughs. It's like the weekends where I'll go on vacation. I'm, I'm, you know, over at Disney with my kids. I'll get 14 emails that weekend. But the weekend I'm sitting around with nothing to do, we'll get no emails. And you're just like, it, it's, it's like they know. It's a, they know where you are sometimes. But uh, for the most part, it's, you know, it's, it's relatively calm outside of those surges, even when it does spike a little bit. You know, we, we can take that pretty, pretty good in stride between just Zach and I. So you also just said like our clients get a better review meeting. So what like what makes the review meeting better this way? The process that we're using, you know, we're now getting, let's just say, you know, this is a review meeting where we're going to walk through their 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 tax return and their their new employee benefits, right? 
we now are looking at 108 tax returns, 108 employer benefits. We, we are literally fine-tuned looking for certain things, looking for this. And remember that we're, we, we niche very hard. So most of our clients are between the ages of really 30 and like 45. I'd even say 30 and 40. So when there's a change in the tax code, it probably affects all of my clients. When there's a change in student loans, it probably affects like 75% of my clients. So that's why it wasn't until we started to really niche that I thought surges made a lot of sense for me. Um, and that's why I think our clients are getting a much better review out of it because we can take a consistent process and run that through at least at a high level, but then still customize you know, for each client's unique situation. So that's why I think they're getting a much better process, a much better review out of it. And then again, on the back end, it's just you know, during surge, our client knows, our, our client, our team knows, um, our team knows that, hey, we're only doing review meetings. The next two months, we are heavy in review meetings and, and we're going to really, you know, streamline that process. And so I guess like the the niche focus and having a, a fairly narrow range of clients makes this a little more doable because I guess, as you said, you know, some rule changes in student loans as we've been going through recently here and the overwhelming majority of your clients basically need the same analysis and they're probably going to get a pretty similar piece of advice, like not over genericizing, just like if they all have the same problem, then they all need to end up needing the, the same solution because like same position, same background, same debt amount, same circumstances, same non might even literally be the same nonprofit they work for. So everything lines up relatively well because of the client focus in the first place. Yeah. And, and, and we have a, a ton of academic physicians too. So a, a lot of benefits from one academic institution to the other are, are, are similar, at least in like a chassis, like, you know, the 401A, 403B, and a 457B. We have a lot of physicians that are literally at the same hospital. So if we just reviewed an employee benefits package, I know that I can also take that same conversation to four or five other physicians that we work with at that same hospital. So that's where it's just the efficiencies come in, which allow us to focus more on the client and not the data collection or what's new in the world today. We, we, we have a very, very narrow focus on what we're looking for because it's our people. So now talk to us about surge onboarding. So, so, you, so you take this whole thing that you do in March and April for clients and then do existing clients and then do new clients in May. And you take a surge process in September, October for regular clients and do it in November for new clients. So, so talk to us about surge onboarding. Like why do you do this and what does surge onboarding look like? Yes, I, I love the craziness so much that we decided, why don't we do this for new clients too? So this all started with one, the efficiencies, right? We, we see this through the surge now. We've been doing surge meetings for about two years and we see the efficiencies. It, it, it works. It, it makes sense. We, we really like it. So it was one of those ones where, why don't we do this for new client onboarding? Because this is even a, this is actually, I think, even a little bit easier to streamline through a surge because you're literally asking for the same documents. Now, every client's going to have a different story, obviously, but you're literally looking for the same documents. You're putting them into to e-money. You're doing the same reports. You know, We utilize a one-page financial plan thanks to Carl and, and Jeremy there on just their, their one-page plan. So uh, after many years of having kind of a... It was shorter. It was like a seven-pager. Um, but now we got it down to... It's not truly one. It's a, it's a two-pager, but we're literally producing the same document for all these clients with, with you know, their personalized data in it. So I actually think surges almost make more sense 
in the onboarding world than it did for the review meeting world. But that's kind of how the story started. And it, it was one of those ones, Michael, where um, just to give you context on, I, I kind of made my, my office joke earlier about Dwight Schrute, but the, the burnout was probably actually going to occur for me from the amount of new clients. So uh, in 2020, we, we onboarded 44 new clients. Uh, and then in 2021, we onboarded 61 new clients. It if I would continue at that pace, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So for us, it was a way to, I call it controlled growth. It was a way for us to say, hey, we're going to onboard 20 clients per year. We're going to do 10 in May. We're going to do 10 in November. If you fill up May, we push you out to November. If we fill out November, we push you out to May. And that's really the the foundation of how it all started uh, for our surge onboarding as well. So you, I, so I, I like kind of the clarity of the framing. Just we know where we are. We know we need to grow. We're taking 20 new clients a year. It's 10 in the May surge and it's 10 in the November surge. So I get it. But I mean, I'm just envisioning like new client you meet in February. They like, Chad, this sounds great. I so want to work to you. you. Let's get started. And you're like, we'd be happy to do that in three months. Like just walk me through how this conversation works. Because I, at least from my experience, like, it's so hard to get clients going just in the first place, like, you know, to decide you want to hire a financial advisor and go down this road and engage one of us. Like, I find usually by the time clients decide they really want to work with us and, and have some impetus to get going, it's because something's happening in their lives that is creating the action motivation, which means they usually want to get going now because, like, now's the time they want to hire an advisor. So, I think just how does this? The gap work between someone says, I want to work with you and you tell them that would be great. We'll start with you in May and it's February. Yeah, actually, to, to even add insult to that, uh, so we're currently you know recording here in, in late August. We actually already filled up November, so the icebreaker calls we're hosting right now that we're we're telling them that they're actually onboarding for May 2023. So it's I, I, as I tell everyone, we certainly lose some clients because of this. Without a doubt, I, I literally have had communications like, "Listen, we, we loved our call. You know, we we thought it'd be a great fit, but we we need to get started sooner than that." Um, and and we we lose that client, and and we're, we're even happy when clients say like, "I need to move sooner." We'll actually give them suggested advisors. We'll say, "Hey, listen, you need to, if you need to get moving faster, here's three other fantastic advisors that will knock it out of the park for you." Like, I I know you'll be in great hands, but for 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 our clients too, and I think this is important plugging in our niche, where I think a lot of times, maybe with with the, the baby boomer generation, it is more, I'm retiring tomorrow, I want to plan now. Not to say that doesn't apply to, to our generation, Gen X, Gen Y, because usually it's something different where, hey, I, you know, I went from a $50,000 uh, resident salary to, to a $250,000 attending salary, I'm buying a house, I'm having my first kid. But usually in that moment, were their first advisor. So they don't have like, I need to do this by tomorrow or I'm in trouble. And and we'll we, we, we'll talk through that on the call. Like if there's ever something really pressing, we're okay to refer business out. We're okay to say, well, listen, this isn't a financial advisor. Like you, you need an accountant or you just need someone to review your student loans. Like contact Travis over at the student loan planner. Like let him go through this and then circle back. We'll do the whole financial plan. So we certainly lose clients, Michael. I, I don't want to sugarcoat that either. But, but how how many fall away? I mean, it's like it's you know. it's it's very few. I, I I don't know if that's going to catch anyone off by okay. by surprise. It, it's at least based by on actual client communication, where they're like, "Hey, listen, we like you, but we're, we just can't wait that long." It, it hasn't happened very often. And One. now 
weird spot now where it's the whole way out to May, but usually they're waiting two or three months and and we'll tell them if, if they get added to the wait list, but they have a question in the meantime, we'll be there for them. Um, especially right now, physicians, student loans, you know, with things changing, we'll note that, hey, if you're on the November wait list and it's only August, don't think that we're not going to respond to you. Send us a note. Now, I can't answer when you're going to be able to retire because I don't have that level of detail yet. But if it's little things here or there, send us a note. We'll, we'll make sure that we're taking care of it and, and getting those things organized even before your official client. Well, and, and I guess the, the reality at some level is just if you're already getting, like if your goal is to grow at 20 clients and you don't want more than that because that's too crazy growth and you've already lived that and you're already filling the 20 slots that you want need to fill, like if someone else leaves, I guess, it, like if a, if a prospect falls through, it doesn't really matter because like you're filling that seat on the bus anyway. Like it's not like you're going to grow slower because someone else says no, if you're literally already filling the 20 slots anyways. Yeah, exactly. And that's, we, we just, it's a good balance. Um, it allows me to keep mental clarity. It allows my team, you know, in, 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 you know, I'm doing air quotes right now in our calmer months where it's not a surge, it allows them to have a good pace. So we just, we really enjoy it. Now this is relatively new. We just put this into play earlier. Uh, technically late 2021 is when we were like, Oh, this seems like a good idea. And so it's, it's relatively newer. So we're still fine, fine tuning. November would be our third surge onboarding. Uh, and we really, really like what's occurred so far on the first two. And we, we really do plan to continue going this uh, or continue this type of onboarding as we go forward as well. So talk to us about just the surge onboarding process. I mean, you've said 10 clients, so I'm presuming we're, we're not a 13, we're not 13 meetings a week anymore. But like what just, what is the meeting cadence and flow look like? I mean, a lot of advisors do multiple meetings that stretch out over sometimes several months, which would kind of mess with your surge focus here. So like, what is your onboarding process? If I'm that February client that said, Chad, let's go. And you said, okay, well, we, we do this in May. And I'm like, cool, like I'll, I'll do the thing in May. So May comes up, like what happens? What, like, what is my actual process and experience as a client? Yeah, again, very, very organized process. Plan builds take pretty much two months on average. So from here's your plan and agreement, here's your plan presentation, it's going to take us about two months. We literally will send out the plan and agreement on the 1st of May, the 1st of November, again, assuming that's on, on a business day. We'll send them that over. We get the DocuSign. We send them their payment through. through we use Advice Pay for all of our, our subscriptions. Uh, so we send Advice Pay over. Once we see the initial plan creation fee come in, we give them access to eMoney. Once they get the eMoney, there's a document waiting there for them that says, here's pretty much what we want you to upload. Anything with a dollar sign should be in here. But don't freak out. We're not sending you a huge homework assignment because no one likes homework assignments. Not only that, we're going to check in every single week with you to make sure the plan is moving forward. If you're uploading documents, are they linked? If you're linking documents, do we have the do we have the PDFs, the statements to to go with them? Do we have your taxes? Do we have your your open enrollment, uh, your benefits through your employer? And we'll literally check in on a weekly basis. Sometimes it's just, hey, great job, you crushed it. Sometimes it's a little bit more handholding. Sometimes clients can't find stuff, but we'll literally go through that process for call it about a month until we get most of the data. We then host another call, which we call the discovery call. I always call that the soft side of money. So really trying to get away from data and get into more of the goals and values. We'll, we'll do that for usually about an hour. Finalize the plan just in case if any new scenarios came up in that deeper conversation. And then we present the plan. And like I said, from start to finish, about two months. So it, it, it really fits in nicely. So I'm, I'm trying to make sure I fall from a, a meeting's perspective. So you have some initial meeting when they're still a prospect where they agree that they're 
they're going to become a client and start with you in in May. Although you don't actually do agreements when we talk in February, I just say like, I'm going to start with you in May. And then when we get to May, you may first, I get the agreement that says, when you know, we're getting going, once I sign the agreement, I set up my payments and advice pay, then I get my e-money login, then I start entering my information, uploading my documents. So I guess like clients go through the e-money input your information process, but there's no there's no meeting yet. You're gathering all the data in first and doing weekly check-ins just to see is it going okay. The first meeting meeting doesn't come until a month later. So like if it was May onboarding process, it's June that we're actually doing the meeting to have a discovery call meeting for the non-financial data. And then some period of time after that, we meet and have the the proverbial plan presentation meeting because you've got all the data. We did the discovery call and now you're ready to present a plan and give some recommendations. Yep. Yeah, you, you did it really well. I would say that the first, we start with that icebreaker call, which is our prospect call. Discovery call would be the next call, plan presentation. And then after the plan presentation, we will we'll literally put a link in our follow-up note that says, hey, let's get a plan implementation call. And that's when we'll help them actually start to implement the plan if it's something like we have to do a screen share, like update their 403B. Like that's a very common thing that we'll do on that call. So it's really from start to finish, there's four meetings from I think I want to be a client to I am a client and let's get this thing implemented. We have four meetings in there. And so how do these space out? Like I get discovery call may not actually occur until like early June because I spend a lot of May getting my stuff inputted. How long from the discovery call until the plan presentation? How long from plan presentation to implementation? Yeah, so plan presentation is usually usually about two weeks after the discovery call because at that point we have I would say we have ninety five percent of the data. It's just do we have to massage anything, adding you know different what if plans or other plans to 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 review with them as opposed to just their base plan, and then after the plan presentation, we'll literally include a link for their plan implementation call. Sometimes they'll schedule that the next week. Sometimes they'll schedule it a few weeks out to see if they can get some things done in the meantime. And if we're managing assets for them and they're like, hey, let's get that backdoor Roth fired up. I want to open up a new joint account. Our team will already start on that too. And we'll actually start to prepare the DocuSign. We'll send that stuff over to them as well. So the plan implementation call is usually for things that we can't control directly for them. And, and employer plans are probably the most common thing that we're taking care of. Or another good one, you know, open up 529 plans, uh, you know, through the through the direct side of the website on, you know, through, through a Utah or whatever the example would be. Okay. So to the extent you're managing a portfolio for them, like when does that paperwork get done and money and money start moving if that's not necessarily at the implementation call? So we'll, we'll actually walk through a proposal as part of our plan presentation. So Usually, we don't like them to make a call on that one because we use flat fees. I would say you don't. We don't have to manage a dollar for you. You don't. You don't have to have us manage anything. But if they do want us to manage money, we'll go through the plan implementation with them, or excuse me, the plan proposal with them. Walk through it. You know what would the allocation look like? Here's our reasoning behind it. Here's what we do for the joint account, the Roth. You know, yada yada. So. If they usually will put a note in the follow-up that just says, hey, take a time, take some time, let this all soak in. Let me know if you have questions. Let me know if I can clarify anything. I know the backdoor Roth IRA sounds goofy, but it, it, I promise it, it's all normal stuff. This is what we would do for you. Once they send us that note, our team will work on the DocuSign. You know the paperwork in our industry, so it usually t- takes a few days to get that ready. But you know, if they have the plan presentation, they get back to us the next day or that week. You know, Usually, we're putting accounts in, in, in process by the following week. And you mentioned earlier that plan presentation for you is a, a, a two-page plan or like a, a one-page plan, but it goes on to the second page. So I just like what's what's the two-page plan for you? I mean, like what are you what are you producing and delivering in this plan presentation meeting? 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll walk through, we'll have a net worth section, we'll have, uh, we actually, so with a lot of our physicians being going for public service loan forgiveness, we'll have a, a student loan tracker on there. Uh, on the right side of their plan, we'll actually have really their action items like, hey, we just built a financial plan for two months. Uh, there's, there's more things to do than this, but these are the most pressing items. And even on top of that, usually when I send over my follow-up email, I'll even try to get that narrower because you know, a, a list of 10 vital things to do can still feel very overwhelming. So usually I'll try to compress that into like two or three and then continue to peel that onion back until we, we get everything done. So we'll have that on the first page. We'll, again, an income analysis, net flow and, or a net worth analysis, to-do list takes up most of the right side. We will have a section for goals and values. So just trying to always make it deeper than, you know, an Excel spreadsheet. And then we use another thing, which we just call it the WealthKill Snapshot. It's, it's essentially just a fancy uh, Excel spreadsheet. Most of those tabs are the ones that are actually feeding into the deliverable then through the, the one-page plan. But then on there, we've also custom-built some other tabs uh, where we like to track insurance. We like to track beneficiaries, share the beneficiaries, you know, actual dollar amounts. We, we sold that one from Matthew Jarvis. So just trying to always build that. A pretty detailed student loan analysis is also on there. So that's what we currently have in our, again, air quotes, our, our one-page financial plan. And just how do you build this? I mean, like, where are you doing it? Is this out of planning software? Does this come from eMoney? Most of the data is coming through eMoney. We'll put a little note on there where it's coming from. So if we're actually getting like the net worth data, where we're actually putting their net worth tracker in there, we're like, hey, we're getting this data from eMoney. So if eMoney is not correct, just yeah. don't freak out if this number doesn't look right. And, and if we see something weird too, we're obviously going to bring it up to them. Or if we're putting like something from, usually like to write, write down their marginal effective tax rate, you know, we'll put a note in there, hey, this is coming from Holista Plan. So we're always giving them notes on where it's coming from. And then we're just taking that and updating the, um, it's really just a, a Word document that we turn into a PDF then. And that's how we're transferring the data also through that, uh, the, uh, the Excel spreadsheet, what we call the Wealth Kill Snapshot. I want to make sure I understand this balance between there's the two page plan and then there's like, which is a two page Word document slash PDF. And then you said there's the wealth kill snapshot in Excel. So, like, what's what, which is which here? Yeah. So, the wealth kill snapshot is going to be more of the numbers, right? Where it doesn't translate nicely into words. And this is sometimes where we'll literally take like their, their NSLDS text file, that ugly text file for your student loans, and we'll have it nicely organized in their Excel spreadsheet. And then we'll take that and build in our student loan analysis. So that would never, we would never want to present that to the client. So we kind of keep it on the back end for us. And then we'll have other tabs that they can see, or like the beneficiary tab. This is also where we will track their cash flow. So this is where we update their pay stubs at least once per year, usually at, actually at both reviews, where we'll literally type in every single thing from their paycheck, everything from their paycheck. And then we'll have our important ratios on the other side, you know, home cost ratio, total debt ratio, savings ratio. So each tab kind of has it's, it's almost like each tab are the main tabs from the financial plan. You know, you have your, your financial wellness per se, you have your student loans, you have your insurance, you have your investment tab. If, if they have a taxable account, that's where we're going to track to see. And this would be another one where we'll grab the data from eMoney, but we'll pull in taxable accounts that we might not be managing directly for them. And just look, you know, is there any goals for tax loss harvesting? You know, do we need to rebalance anything? Is anything look out of whack? So we're doing all that through the wealth heel snapshot. So more data in that one, not the wording. So what do you use eMoney for? <laughs> like what's left? Because <laughs> you said just your like your wealth kill snapshot basically covers all the different domains of financial planning because you got insurance and investments and cash flow budgeting and all the rest. Like what what do you do with eMoney? 
Yeah, no, that, that's actually funny that you worked that way. So eMoney obviously is our aggregator, right? So we, we get all of our live data in there. That's where we're seeing the, the live feeds for things. But for the most part, I always say that eMoney is our, our longer term outlook. Um, I'm using Excel spreadsheets for the day to day, short term. Longer term outlook is run through eMoney. You know, are we on track for financial independence at 55? Are we on track for retirement at 65? That's truthfully the, the bulk of what I'm doing inside of okay. eMoney outside of the aggregation tool. We also use their vault. You know, when we do, when we're asking for all these documents, we do everything through the vault. Clients do like to be able to sign in and see everything in one spot. So there's a lot more benefits to eMoney than just us using it for the long term outlook. But from my side of it, that's probably like the biggest thing that I rely on them for. So the 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 short to intermediate term planning, which I get like for clients in their 30s and 40s, like a lot of their financial lives and financial planning is not what's happening in 20 to 40 years. It's what's happening in like 24 to 48 months or or less. So that that short to intermediate term blocking and tackling planning, it sounds like, is is what you built in in the snapshot in Excel and the long term projection y stuff still lives in eMoney as well as the account aggregation in the vault. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, even, you know, for again, Gen X and Y, like budgeting is still a very popular topic. We don't even, we don't really love eMoney's budgeting tool. So we'll tell, say, hey, download Tiller. Or if you like YNAB, YNAB, for whatever reason, my brain could never comprehend YNAB. I can't fathom pain in advance, but I love Tiller. I love YNAB. I don't care what our clients are using, long as they're doing it, we're proud of them. But Tiller, you know, they'll just actually shell, sh- share their spreadsheet with us. Um, and that way we can even jump in there before a review and see, like, wow, they're, they're crushing it, right? They're, they're hitting all their numbers. They have extra saving. Emergency fund looks good. So we're trying to really even make the budgeting part, which is not all that sexy, a little bit more appealing to them. So what what does Tiller do that eMoney's own budgeting tools don't do? Just the simple things, right? They're, when you go to like tag transactions, you could literally have Trader Joe's grocery store and they'll say, oh, you got gasoline today. Like it it just it never seemed to match up very nicely, and I know that's that's tough, and they're already doing so many great things inside of the software. Um, but that was always just really one of those ones that was like infuriating to go through and have to do all that manual data. If you ask a client who already hates the word budget to go budget, but when they go to budget, it doesn't work, they're not going to budget. So right. it was just, you need it to work. And, and we you know, always tell our clients, like you don't have to go budget daily, weekly, monthly. Maybe you do it quarterly. But if whatever the, the frequency would be, if you're, if you're not enjoying it per se, or it's not working, this thing doesn't stand a chance. So I guess in practice, this surge onboarding process for you, I mean, you, we talk about it in May and November following on on the client surges, but in practice, it's really not May and November. It's like May, June, November, December, because there's a, a an almost two-month process to actually get through the discovery meeting and the presentation meeting and the implementation meeting. It's not as though there's an immediate onslaught of meetings in May right after the March-April surge. In fact, it actually sounds like May meetings are probably pretty light because they're just doing all their data input-y stuff that you don't kick off until May 1st. Yeah, the the onboarding process now is it's not overwhelming. Even with with 10 clients, it's a very smooth transition. Most clients are moving at a little bit of different pace too. So very rarely do we get like all 10 clients are like, you know, on on May 2nd, hey, everything's uploaded. Now what do I do? It it, it very rarely works that way. Because I was going to ask, like, wouldn't just when surges are that intensive, wouldn't you want to break after surging client meetings before you surge onboarding meetings? But I guess the reality is, 
you actually do get a break stacking your search onboarding meetings where you do because it is going to have a natural gap from from when the client surge is just finished. Yeah, and and most most of the calls now, Zach also runs that discovery call. We just started doing that this year. So f- from my perspective, I actually, my May and June are relatively calm. And then I'll hit, like this week, I had three planned presentations. Then I'll hit like two or three weeks in a row where I have three or four planned presentations, if, if they're all going accordingly. Sometimes they're a little bit more spaced out than that. So then I'll get kind of bombarded right there towards the end of June and then right there End of December, obviously holiday season can throw that off a little bit. So maybe we're in early January. Regardless, somewhere in that time frame, you know, I'll have 10 planned presentations, usually in a short window. And so for you through all of this, I guess just you're you're with the surges because as busy as the surges get during surge time, it's it's that much lighter the rest of the time. It, as crazy it is too, it, it just for, for for me personally, like even in the height of the actual surge review meetings. I never really feel overwhelmed. Am I tired? I, I am tired at the end of a day. I sleep good that night. I sleep good on, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, but it just never seems too overwhelming for me. And that's why you know we continue to do the surges and also why I like to do the surge for, for client onboarding. Um, but I think every advisor would kind of have to find their rhythm. Like I said, I have friends that are world-class advisors and they'll straight up tell me if I do more than two to three meetings, like there's no way. And 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 I could still do that. I would just space, space it out over a little bit longer time. So I think everyone just has to know their, their rhythm and their, their limits, really. So now help us understand just where are all these clients coming from? The, I think you said like 40-something clients in 2020 and then 60-something clients in 2021. Like That is an immense amount of client volume. So where are all these clients coming from? Yeah. So now we get to my favorite topic, Michael. This is where we we niche, my friend. Uh, your favorite word, my favorite word. So glorious. glorious. <laughs> we 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 niche with the best of them. It wasn't always like this. You know, it, it took a while to build this up. This is where um, I think it was even your, your, literally your Twitter post earlier today, where I said, you know, niching can take can take years. Um, and for us, it, it certainly took years to get there. But we have built up a name for ourselves. We we are the, the White Coat Investor Blog, Doctor Dolly. We've been a big part of his community th- since two thousand sixteen, which has been um, a huge influence for us. We we speak at a lot of hospitals. I try to write, you know, all of our blog posts are catered to the physician community. Um, I really nerd out on, on SEO and getting into the weeds for that too. You know, we're, we're usually hosting. Uh, 2021, I, I hosted 145 prospect calls. Uh, so far this year, I've had 104 prospect calls as of the start of August. So it's it, we had to lay seeds for a while, but it's it's really cool when the seeds start to sprout a little bit. And I feel like we're starting to see some of that now. And again, kind of on the nerdy side of SEO, like I track our organic traffic. I, I, I go through blog audits quite a bit to make sure, you know, is is the blog post still relevant? Can we do anything to make it look better? So that is where we're getting a lot of these calls from. It's just we we really, really bought into our niche and really love the people that we work with. And, and we try to yell it from the rooftops. Well, I was going to say just like, where are they coming? I mean, what you, you mentioned a lot of different channels, like what's working? Just where are, where are clients coming from? I say we have three three big sources. The White Coat Investor Network has been huge for us. And that was more or less us getting on his advisor list. And I always yeah, I tell advisors outright that, that, advi- that Dr. Dolly does go through and make sure you're not slinging you know, permanent life insurance to, to residents or anything like that. So there is an interview process, but we've been a part of that community since we got on that list. And you know, when I would write a new blog post, I, I would send Dr. Dolly a quick email and say, hey, could you include this maybe in your, your monthly report? Some some months he'd say, no, it, no. And then some other months he would. We've written guest posts for his website. It's one of those things where I, I don't think it's overly complicated, but where are your people? 
wherever your people are, someone already worked their butt off to get this huge community. Just see if you can talk to them, right? And, and, and that's really what I've done. In the context of the good old-fashioned find centers of influence, like Jim Dolly, the big blogger for doctors, is your COI when your niche is young doctors. Yeah, and 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 you know he he's a blogger, but he is so finance forward that he's trusted. I mean, he is really trusted. I mean, his his, his followers are, uh, and, and it's actually one of the reasons why we love getting clients from there. They're usually a little bit more financially literate. Like we can we can talk about some neat things that I might not be able to talk to or talk through with the average Joe because they didn't read all these crazy blog posts on backdoor Roth IRAs or asset protection or physician mortgages. So it's also just a more exciting client that comes there. So that's been a huge part for us, the blog post. We write all of our blog posts for physicians now. Uh, it took us a while to get to that point. It was terrifying to get to that point. You know, I always say we, we weren't always this niche. Like it, it, it took a while. It, it took literally years uh, to get to this point. So we see a lot of volume come in from just our blog post. And then when, when people schedule online, we'll literally ask them that. We'll say, you know, where did you find us? Sometimes we'll obviously list referrals. Sometimes we'll lit white, white coat investor. They'll put, you know, your blog. And then we do pretty good. We made a... Um, a little ebook that we just kind of share on socials. Every now and then another physician might post it in like a Facebook group and it wasn't posted from us. We had that happen once. We got like 152 or 150 new email subscribers like overnight. Um, and it's just a little ebook. It's it's 10 chapters and it's just more or less like little hot topics for physicians to think about. And now our email list is, I think we're right around 900. So Every week, I write something called the Wealth Kill Weekly, where we're just writing little notes on, you know, hey, here's what's going on in the world. Also, here's what's going on with student loans and, and this and that. And usually, I'll try to do shameless plugs of my cute kids on there too to make sure that they know I'm a human. Um, and we get a, a good amount of kind of circle back from those. But it's it's neat, Michael, because you're, you're literally watching like they read articles for three or four years. and But now, now all of yeah. a sudden, they will become a client. It's, it's, it's always funny when that happens. So so what's a typical client for you? Just what is, what is that? profile. Yeah. So most of our physicians that come to us are usually within the first 10 years of being an attending. So um, it, it, it kind of depends on their specialty on when they could become an attending. But you know, say 35 to 45 is a very hot spot for us. Usually already have a young family going. So and that's that's one of the reasons why I love Gen X and Gen Y. I wanted to relate on things outside of just money. And they really have a lot of those accumulation things, right? Their their income is starting to skyrocket. Uh, they probably have a large amount of student debt still, you know, whether they're going for public service loan forgiveness or they're going for more aggressive payoff. They're possibly buying their first home or their second home. They're getting ready to grow their family or maybe have their first child. So it's that traditional high income, but we just really focus on physicians and, and, and probably mid, low to mid six figures from an income perspective, net worth can be all over the board. We have households with a million dollars of student loan debt. Uh, we have clients that'll come to us and you know they have two to $3 million of investable assets already. So the net worth is the number that could really swing. Literally the same age, but just completely different net worth. But the, the income number is usually pretty consistent, whether it's a, a single physician household or we have quite a few dual physician households as well. So that's, that's kind of what you know, our, our avatar would look like. And then what do you charge for this? Yeah, so our 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 base fee uh, is five hundred dollars per month, so uh, six thousand dollars per year, and then kind of a unique thing that we do, we we put like buffers in there. So if their if their income, if their household income is anywhere from five hundred to a million, we'll add another hundred dollars per month, so so six hundred dollars per month. Um, if their household income is over a million, uh, we would add three hundred dollars per month. So in that example, you know now they're up to eight hundred. Then we also do a net worth variable. So net worth between uh, five hundred thousand and a million, we add two hundred. 
a million to three million four hundred, three million plus uh, five hundred. And those are two separate tiers. So you could literally get a base fee of five hundred. Your income adds a hundred, and then your your net worth adds two hundred as well. And then that's how we get our total fee. You know, just kind of preparing for our call. I think our average fee uh, today is right around six hundred dollars. To kind of give you an idea of a little bit higher than the base fee, but sometimes it's a little bit because of net worth. Sometimes it's a little bit because of the um, the higher income. So that's kind of like our average spot right now, about six hundred dollars per household. And so, when do you make these determinations of which tier they're they're in? So we ask this question when they schedule online. Um, now you're probably thinking, how the heck do you trust that data? There is a confirmation that comes in play there. Most clients can nail their income. Um, it's the net worth number that we're just like, well, we'll see if they were right or not. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, so we're usually giving them, we'll, we'll literally send them a follow-up email with a quote. We'll talk through this on that icebreaker call. Say, hey, kind of walk me through what the balance sheet looks like. Um, and even though I labeled as net worth, I actually really monitor that closer, like assets under advisement. You know, if it's just their primary residence, I'm not worried about the equity in their home. You know, if they're they're a partner in a practice, I'm not worried about their business. It's going to ask like what goes into the net worth calculation to do net worth. Yeah, it, it's pretty much you know assets under advisement. You know what's in what's in the 401k, what's in the taxable account. You know, do they have 500,000 sitting in cash? They're thinking about what to do. So even though we list it as net worth on the website, I, I really bring that closer to, to more of an uh, an assets under advisement type question. Because then you don't make a distinction about whether you're going to manage it directly or not. You may. It sounds like you you do have that as an option. But you know, it, as long as its assets were advising on some way and it adds up to X, we're like it's going to bump you up to the next tier. Yeah, exactly. And and we we we, we review that. You know, we're actually going to do a pretty large fee increase at the end of this year. And part of that was because I, I underpriced when we had these two big, you know, really big boom years the last two years. So I'll go through and have to update some things, but we'll monitor this. I, I always tell clients if they like if they if they go over the income number in the middle of the year, I'm not going to send them. You know, hey, congratulations on the higher uh, the pay raise there, but you owe us more money too. We'll, we'll wait till the end of the year, kind of circle up, get things organized, and if they're kind of teetering around one of the numbers, we'll give them some flexibility to like comfortably comfortably above that number. Well, I was going to ask on those lines, like I get it in the upfront process when you quote them, but just how do you manage this on an ongoing basis to track down like the latest income and net worth to do the latest fee calculation for a hundred plus different clients. Yeah. The, the beauty of uh, comprehensive planning going forward, right? So we're always updating these numbers for the clients so we can get through there. And we'll keep an eye on this even when I go through the reviews. If if I see their numbers $400 per month, but yet their income is above 500000 their net worth is you know dramatically going up right there, it's already going to trigger a flag for me to, for something to look at. So it, it it really keeps pace pretty well. And we, we tell our clients that at the start, like, hey, you're going to have, you're going to go through these barriers, right? And, and we're going to have fee increases. We'll tell them to, you know, we didn't really have to have any inflation conversations till recently, but, you know, there'll be inflation adjustments where we might come around to every household, you know, next year and say, hey, it's going up $25 because, you know, inflation's going up. That's the only downside to flat fees. You know, AUM, you don't really have to worry about that, right? Yeah. The market is your hedge. With flat fees, you, you got to pay attention to that because, you know, $500 per month now is not going to be the same as $500 per month, you know, 15 years from now. So as you go through the the planning process, like any particular clients during their surge one or surge two, if it turns out they've now grown to the point that they've crossed a threshold, they just you may give them a fee adjustment. Yeah, exactly. So what I'll do, we're we're essentially watching it throughout the year. But if I see for this surge two coming up, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, their income went above five hundred thousand. I'm not going to 
increase it at that meeting, I'll make note of it. I'll say, hey, look, we're going to have a little bit of a fee increase at the end of the year. Your income went above that one threshold. You know, we talked about this when you first got started. Do you have any questions, anything I can clarify for you? All right, you don't have to worry about anything till now. My team will literally send you a new DocuSign at the end of this year. We'll send you a new link for advice pay on January 2nd. You're good to go. And it's just a very smooth conversation. I guess, so it just, it strikes me as you're describing this, like it's a very not like, Hey, hey, your income went up or your net worth went up. You've crossed the line. Here you go. Like you're 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 kind of easing them into it over a couple of months. Sounds like almost almost nowhere, no matter where, when, and where it happens, you're you're easing them in a little bit. Yeah, and we don't have any like. I mean, if you're already paying five hundred dollars per month and your household income is now in the five hundred to million dollar range, five hundred thousand to million dollar range, if I tell you your fees going up a hundred dollars per month. You're probably not going to be like, oh my goodness, I can't afford this guy. What's he yeah, doing? You're, yeah, you're like you're cash flowing a half a million plus dollars a year. Like it's it's not a deal breaker if they can afford it. And I guess while you're not an AUM model, if and when and as their assets grow, like your fee will rise in a quasi AUM manner because they'll just they'll start ticking off the higher net worth tiers, which starts lifting them at least to some extent. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's it's it's. It works out really well too, because eventually, right, their 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 household income is going to slow or stop. But by that point, you know, we're very right. comfortable that their net worth numbers push them up uh, quite a bit. And working with physician households, you know, our our, our top is at at three million. Like, ideally, hopefully, you know, most of them will go right through that number too. So, and we we also cap our fees. So. If you you can never go above thirteen hundred dollars per month, so we we also put that in there, and which is why we we get an we get a good amount of physicians that are a little bit later in their careers, where even though we put Gen X and Gen Y pretty pretty loudly on our website, well they just sat down and they kind of did the math and like you know well heck if you're capping your fees like I could do a lot better here, um you know for for whatever reason so that that's always it's always an interesting thing that we see evolve. So thirteen hundred a month, fifteen little over fifteen thousand dollars a year. Yep. So why why cap the fee? That's a good question, Michael. You know, I, <laughs> to me, when I think through professional services, and and this is not, uh, you know, there, there, I I literally say this to clients too. That there's there is not a perfect fee model. Every fee model is going to have some type of conflict in it. It's just, do you know what it is? And for us. When I sit there and I look at what we do for our clients, if a client is paying me fifteen thousand dollars to to our to our team for what we do, to me that sounds like a good number. It feels like our clients should be happy with that number, but we should also be happy with that number. So for me, I feel good there. There's probably a little bit of imposter syndrome in there too. You know, just being completely honest with everybody, there's probably a little bit in there because I, I'm sure you would have some some other advisors that would say, "Hey, you know, you're undercharging." We might have some advisors say you're overcharging. But for for me, what? my values and how I I, I built Wealth Keel, um, it feels like a good number. It feels like a good number for our clients. It feels like a good number for our firm. And it, it's I've always used the example of if your net worth goes from you know a million to two million, my fee should not have doubled. Like that's I'm here to help you. That that's what I want to do. Um, sure, it can go up a little bit, but I, I don't think my fee should have doubled. So that that's why we put the caps in there. But also, you know, kind of found a pricing structure that we were happy with as well. I do have to increase fees for next year that came in well before we were at that $500 base, and I need to get them up to that number. So they're they're and I did that last year actually for about the same amount of households. So it kind of just shows you how quickly the growth has occurred. Yeah. So I, I'm we're going to have another fee adjustment for those clients later this year. Well, start of the year, I guess. 
And so I got to ask, like, how, how do you get? How do you get comfortable with that? Because I know for a lot of advisors, like one of the most sensitive issues is going back to the clients that started with me when I was young, and I didn't know as much. Like they took a risk on me, and they're like, for a lot of us, I feel like there's this sort of implied moral obligation, maybe just that we put on ourselves. That's like, you know, they came to me when I was early; they should get to keep the fee that that they got at the time. And you seem pretty comfortable to say like, nope, our current structure is this, so we got to move you there. You're taking your time, but like you're moving them there. So how, how do you think about like raising fees on those early clients who started with you way back when? Yeah, I guess it's just the calluses build up, right? So the good news is most of these clients join us somewhat recently. This is literally like the bulk of clients from 2020 and 2021. But for most of them, it's going to be like a 100 or maybe a $200 increase. And I don't want to say that's an insignificant amount of money, but for our clientele, that shouldn't catch them off guard. But they've also worked with us for a year or two. So this is where it's on me. We either showed you enough value that you're thinking, yeah, easy. Like I'm surprised you didn't charge me more the whole time. Like fantastic. Let's do it. When we did our last one last year, I think we only lost two clients on about another 40 household increase. And one of them was already like, Hey, I think I'm only going to stick with you guys for a few months. I'm going to head out. So it was a pretty smooth one last year. Uh, You know, fingers crossed this one will go just as well. These clients technically even had a little bit more time with us, Um, but it's not like we're going from you know, $100 per month to $800 per month. Most of these clients are going to go about $100 or $200 per month for, for the most part. Some of them also then hit like a income increase or a net worth increase where they might have a little bit higher number, but they probably knew that already headed into it because they had a big life event. You know, a few of those clients had, you know, larger buyouts and things like that. So they, they know it's coming. Well, I guess just mathematically, like if you raise one to two hundred dollars a month on forty on forty households, like that can be anywhere from forty to eighty thousand dollar and just cumulative fee increase. So like if you lose two clients in the midst of a forty to eighty thousand dollar total fee increase to right size for the services, like you're it, it, you're still fine. Like you'll be up thirty to seventy net and get paid more and have fewer clients to service. Like that that's going okay for the business and the ability to get paid your value for the clients you're serving. Yeah, I think actually when I did the math on those updates, because there are a few that are higher, I think the actual reoccurring number increases like literally $83,000. So it's it's a big update for us, but it's spread out over so many clients that, you know, fingers crossed, it, it goes pretty smoothly. And then just what does this add up to for total size of the firm at this point? I, I guess like number of clients and I don't even know if you measure by still assets or by total revenue, but just help us understand overall size of the practice now. Yeah, so we are uh, right at about 110 households. So we have 110 ongoing households. You know, another unique thing I've done over the in the past, I'm going to do one more this year. Is I actually will. Uh, I, I hate this term. We will actually sell. We will move a few clients over to other advisors who are not a good fit for us. So that'll free up a little bit more capacity. The nice thing when I do this, I actually use that 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 capital then to allow us to grow even more. So we will actually lower our headcount a little bit at the end of the year to give us even more capacity to grow within the physician niche. Um, so we'll do so that. You're, you're literally going to sell the the client base as a, up like a partial business sale. Yeah. Not just and, like referring them out, like someone can buy these because then you get some cash to reinvest into the business. Yep. So we're going to move them to essentially a, a, another advisor. And these are these are non-physician clients. So they're, they're, they're retiree clients. They And this is actually where it gets really hard for me because you know we kind of noted like clients that have been with you from the start. Some of these clients have been with me from the start. I mean, they literally saw me get married. They've seen literally the birth of three of my children. This is where you know I I do get emotional on these calls, and it's it's one of those ones where 
you're going to be better served though. Uh, you're going to be in a better spot. And, and some of these, I'm moving them to advisor that's still local to them. You know, I'm from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania originally, and I'm finding them an advisor in Harrisburg. You know, these are a little bit older clients. They, they don't really love Zoom, right? They, they, they might not enjoy me being in Tampa. So uh, it's one of those where I think it's going to be a win-win for everybody. It gives us a chance to introduce the new advisor, but then they get to see him in person. So it's, 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 it's very bittersweet. It's neat that we get to grow our firm even more, but you know, literally some of these clients are our extended family. So uh, that's one of those emotional points. So about 110 clients, team of, of three. So, you know, we've noted Zach quite a bit. I know I've put uh, Liz's name in there as well. We we plan to hire again later this year because Zach will officially be able to call himself a CFP. Uh, I think it's early November, maybe mid-November. So he'll start to take on more of a, a lead advisor role. So then we got to backfill for that paraplanner role. And then ideally we kind of put that on a, on a rinse and repeat process until um, I completely lose my mind. But I, I think that's the, the game plan going forward right now. As you noted, we don't really track AUM per se. So uh, just like high level guidance, we, we finished 2021 uh, just under 600,000, like so close to 600,000 that it, it, it probably affected me for a few days uh, into 2022 on how close we were. And then this year, I think we're on track for right around the, the mid 600s. Uh, there was kind of a unique event to end 2021 that spiked that number a little bit. So right now we should end 2022 right around the mid 600s. And then with those fee increases, that's what will get excited. Exciting because then for for early 2023, pretty much from the start of 2023, assuming no new clients, we would be trending towards mid 700s, and and that doesn't even include the sale of the book in there too, or a portion of the book. So that's where we currently have been bouncing around here for uh, since really the the end of 2021, and where we're headed here, kind of forward looking guidance. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? It's hard, Michael. It's hard. That's <laughs> that's what surprised me. Um, the two things I, imposter syndrome is real. E- even when I say those those numbers, I I I never thought I would say those numbers, and it, it feels like I'm 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 doing I'm I'm I shouldn't be there. I'm not supposed to be there. The other thing that always catches me off, I, I call it the uh, the entrepreneur dilemma, and, and you hit that goal, but you don't even celebrate the goal. You hit the goal, and as soon as you hit that goal, you think about the next goal. And um, I actually started reading uh, on audiobook the the gap in the gain. I know that was on your your, your summer yeah. reading list there, and that that's really I'm really enjoying that book right now because it really hits that topic. So those are two things that really surprise me on a daily basis. You know, just to to be real with everybody, even even earlier on in my my career, my my wife my wife's my high school sweetheart, so she she's literally seen all this. She was actually my my first employee. She uh, she quit pretty quickly, uh, but she was technically my first employee, but there was a period of time early on where I, I would label it as depression. I, I think most doctors would have. I looked for different career paths. I thought, you know, I'm never going to make it. Uh, and then it's just kind of amazing how quickly things can turn. You know, uh, I don't know who the, said the quote, but, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have the highest highs and the lowest lows, and usually within a few hours of each other. That's literally the definition of building an advisory business. So, talk to us more about where was the low point? I had a unique setup where I was able to start to build my practice literally right out of college. So graduated from Penn State and had a fantastic mentor, uh, Eric Dare, who's also up there in, in State College. And uh, we had a unique setup where I was pretty much his paraplanner. So from nine to five, I worked for him. And outside of that time, whether it was late at night or on weekends, I was able to build my book. So I had this unique opportunity where I could go build my book. And it was truly my book. He, he didn't want anything to do with it. And why that sounds fantastic, you quickly realize as a young whippersnapper out of college that not a lot of people want to trust you with all their money. So quickly, you find out that it's it's more difficult than what you thought. And, and that was probably my 
my lowest low, almost right out of the gate, where you have this free freedom, you have this flexibility, but still no one wants to really work with you. Um, you know, luck, luckily I had a base salary. I, I always joke with Eric, you know, thanks for allowing me to eat because that's the only money I had to get for uh, for food. So I think that was really one of those tough times. I mean, uh, my wife will tell you, I, 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 there was days I didn't want to get out of bed. I, I gained a lot of weight and I'm, I consider myself a pretty active human. I, I like to get out and work out early. So that was very uncharacteristic for me. And it was it was tough. And, and as I noted a few minutes ago, like truly looking for other roles, like I can't do this. I can't build a business. Like uh, no one's going to work with me. No one's going to trust me with their, their money. Like what else can I do? So what turned it around? And, you know, I think that's the crazy part, right? It's amazing how quickly it can turn around. And having a good mentor who believes in you was vital. I remember when I sat down with Eric and and even back then, you know, this is like 2011, you know, Project 100 was kind of still a thing, but I hated that. I, 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 you know, I tell everyone the only reason why I created my own business is because I never wanted to do a Project 100 and I never wanted to wear a suit. Project 100 being the bring a list of your 100 friends and family to call on. Yeah, pretty much call everyone that loves you and get them not to love you anymore. Um, and and that was uh, that was where we were. But he realized I wasn't comfortable with that, and and he thought of a good idea where he said, "Well, listen, we're part of a broker dealer, and there's all these orphaned accounts, and these people are just dying to talk to somebody." And it sounds so simple, Michael, but that was a big game changer for me because I was comfortable getting on the phone with them. Because one, I had something to talk about. Uh, I have a bit of, you know, I, I have social anxiety, which is always funny as you say that as an advisor, especially if you ever see me at conference, I'm usually, I'm usually one of the louder ones in there. But usually at the start, I have a level of anxiety that I'm like, eh, I just don't feel like talking to anybody today. But with that, you know, I had a statement, I had something that I could review with them. So it was a good icebreaker for me. And these clients were dying to talk to somebody, you know, someone sold them an annuity 15 years ago, and no one's talked to them. They've now retired, they have all this extra money. And it just, even being the young whippersnapper there, they were willing to talk to you. They invited me into their homes. I sat at their dining room tables. I was logging so many miles that that year, driving all over Pennsylvania. I got out to New Jersey. I think I got up to Southern New York a few times. I hit Maryland a few times. Um, I was on the, the great Chad Chubb Roadshow there. And that was a big turning point for me. That was a, a chance for me to to start working with clients and, and kind of take that that nerve out of it. So what what do you know now you wish you could like go back and tell you from 10 years ago as you were getting started? Niching is important. I, I wish I would have committed sooner. I wish I would have known the the benefits of niching. And I also wish I would have known how vital your website is and, and how vital SEO is. You know, I think if you have a niche with a good looking website and you really focus on SEO, you should still have a good emergency fund because you know I I don't think the clients are just gonna, you know, come banging on the door for you. But you're you're setting yourself up with a really strong foundation and a few you know SEO probably it's been around for for the ten years that I've been doing this but I think it's become a lot more at the forefront for advisors over the past few years you know even when I was on the on the kitchen summit with you uh, talking through some of those those SEO factors and I, I think I wish I would have known that sooner which also probably would have given me a little bit of peace of mind because I was talking to Gen X and Gen Y one of the earlier things that always was tough for me was talking to you know someone that's you know, here I am literally in my young 20s and they're in their mid to late 60s and I'm asking them to trust me with all their money. So I, I even think getting started with a younger generation for, for at least me would have taken a little bit of the edge off. So what advice would you give to other younger, newer advisors getting getting started in the business today? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of share some of those those tough growing pains there, but I, I think those growing pains were, were important. And while I, I hope every young advisor 
would be able to just go out there and, and pick a niche and, and create a beautiful website and have fa- fantastic SEO. I, I realize that that's tough to do. So understanding that you're probably going to have to go put in some hours, learn from a great mentor and, and learn those things while also building up some cash. Uh, that's the one thing, you know, I always say build, build up that runway because th- they're not going to come banging on the door. You know, we focus on physicians, started focusing on them in about 2017, kind of dabbling in there. And it really wasn't until 2000, late 2019, but really 2020, we kind of had that hockey stick moment where it finally turned up for us. So it was, you know, a solid three, four years of screaming that, hey, we work with physicians, we work with physicians. And then they finally started to actually show up at doors. So that's where I think that uh, that runway is really important. Yeah, I will say, we'd, I think we'd written a thing on the site many, many years ago that just having built a number of different niche businesses myself over the years, it, it is disturbing how consistent it is that it takes three years. Like just almost nothing's happening in year one, barely anything more happens in year two. A little bit of stuff starts flowing in year three because like your name's getting out there. And and then suddenly the hockey stick kicks in as you get through three years. And it's like, where where were you the last two, two and a half years that I was building up to this moment? And I've seen very little that materially accelerates it. And to be fair, like starting a business without a niche is also really crappy in the first three years. So it's not that different. But after you get through the initial window, in fact, like the distinction I find is the non-niche businesses, like just every year's a grind and it really never entirely ends until you get a really sizable client base who just start referring you. And niche firms, like it's similarly grindy in the first few years, but after after you get into the third year, like it just starts hockey sticking. Like there's this this weird critical mass moment where word starts getting around. Yeah, I mean, go, going into 2020, uh, my my goal every year before 2020 was onboard 12 new clients. Like that was always my stretch goal. And in 2020, we added 44 new clients. So even going into that year, I was like, I don't know, 12 still sounds crazy. Let's see if this works. And then before you know it, you know, you're at the end of 2020. You're like, what just happened? That was crazy. So. So as we wrap up, just this is a podcast about success. And one of the themes that always comes up is the word success itself means very different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful track of building a successful firm as, as clients and assets grow and, and the team grows. And so the business is firing very well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah. And, and you know, it's, success is probably one of those things where you go through a lot of different iterations of it. And when you when you listen to 300 of these podcasts before, you also get a little prep time in there, Michael. So when I was thinking through it, you know, to me, the ultimate definition of success now is never missing one of my boys' events. So I, I have a five-year-old Riker, almost five-year-old, almost three-year-old Xander, and then a newborn uh, Zayden. And, and as I said earlier, Mari, Mari uh, was my high school sweetheart. And, and crazy enough, we kind of set out on this journey uh, early on where our goal was work your butt off before kids so that you have more flexibility when they get here. And now we're at that point. And, you know, I, I drive Riker to school every morning. I can take off randomly on a Friday to spend time with him. I can take off on a Tuesday for lunch or on a Thursday for lunch for my boys. I, I can do whatever. And to me, that is a definition of success that I, I didn't really think of early on. But now that is the the ultimate level of success and, and just having that flexibility in there because it, it it's so much deeper than just me spending time with my my family, right? It means that I have a good team behind me. It means that we've already built something special where you know I can take off a day or a few days or a week or two weeks. So to me, such a simple statement, never missing one of my boys' events as they as they continue to grow here and, and start different events, whether it's scholastic or uh, you know uh, sport based. So to me, that is the ultimate definition of success. You know, never missing one of my kids' events. Amen. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Chad, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. 
Michael, thank you so much, my friend. Yeah, this was a, this was a bucket list. It's still going to be a little bit surreal to hear my voice on this, but thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.